My mother-in-law once said that parenting is just one long intercession of taking our kids and putting them on a platter and lifting them up to the Lord and saying, God, help me. I think she was right, right? Anybody who's parented teenagers knows of what that is and what that's like. And, and it's for all of us, whether you're a parent or not. But on this day, what we have before us is a great text on what it means to be an intercessor. Yes, we have an intercession ministry, but what does it mean for us individually to be an intercessor? Because that's what we all do in times of prayer, or at least we should. And the text answers the question, do my prayers affect anybody for God? Do my prayers affect anybody for God? Oh, we've constantly heard that great prayer acronym of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, right? That's a great way to form your prayer life daily. Adoration, a time of adoring the Lord, telling the Lord we love him, confessing our sin, giving thanks to God for the blessings of our day or whatever it might be, and then supplication. But supplication, bringing our request to God, can be in two categories, right? We have petitions, which are our own prayers. Lord, Help me to look like George Clooney, all right? <laughs> or we also have intercessions where we pray for others. And today we discover the principles of intercession as we return to our series in Genesis, Abraham, a call to faith. I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles. If you're visiting with us, you'll notice the text is on the back of your bulletin. And we're going to discover what intercession is about. Because intercession is the heart of prayer, is it not? Hudson Taylor said, intercession is learning to move man through God by prayer. It's learning to move man through God by prayer. And I can think of no better occasion than Father's Day for us to not only be men of prayer, but to be women of prayer of others. And so we were last in Genesis as Abraham was reminded in Genesis 18 that God will, despite their old age, is going to honor the promise that he's made to them in bringing forth the child of promise. And God does so with a, an appearance, a physical appearance. In theological circles, it's called a theophany. That God appears to Abraham with two angels. This happens in the scriptures, friends. Hebrews reminds us in chapter 13, verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And so we learn in this theophany that because there's a great outcry, as Sue read for us, it's coming from Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a great outcry there. God, in a huge act of condescension, assures with Abraham that his plan for the angel's visitation to Sodom and Gomorrah, as we will see next week, will be justified. And his actions to Sodom and Gomorrah is justified. And Abram's concern for Sodom doesn't begin in chapter 18. If you look back, it begins in chapter 14. And Abram's concern for Sodom, and especially God's people, the righteous within Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we have in verse 23, Abraham asks, look at me, he says, the question which we all wonder at times, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
Is death as our world believes just a ceasing of life? We venture into the unknown. We're nothing more than food for worms. Or do we go into an everlasting bliss in my everlasting PJs and a harp? Where did that ever come from? I can't play the harp. I don't want a harp either. And neither do you. Or is it as the Bible teaches? That upon our death, we instantly are ushered in the presence of the Lord and we will be judged. And there will be a separation of the righteous from the self-righteous, otherwise the wicked. And Abram, he clearly senses that God won't sweep away the righteous with the unrighteous. And so he begins to plead. Look at the second half of verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It's as if Abram is saying... God, you always do the right thing. So he, he comes to the Lord with intercessions, praying for others, and comes with the assurance that God will always do the just thing. And as we know, the righteous, Lot and his family, were delivered. Why? Because always God always does the right thing, the just thing. And on the day that we stand before him, he cannot do wrong, and he cannot make a mistake, and he cannot make an exception. He will always do as he does what is right. And if we misunderstand this point, our intercessory life will be muddled, and the community of the church becomes nothing more than just a bunch of programs which is, will never last. And it's a crucial subject as we turn this corner in our lives together as Christ Church. And so what we're going to learn in this passage today is, number one, intercessions depend upon a right relationship with God, depend upon praying according to God's character, and three, rest upon our persistency in praying. Okay? Number one, a right relationship with God. Two, intercessions being made according with God's character. And three, being persistent. First, let's look at being in a right relationship with God. Notice this whole conversation is a warm, intimate conversation between his God and Abraham, his friend. That's what James calls Abraham later on. Why is he called the friend of God? Genesis 15, 6, we remember that Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't do anything. He just trusted in the Lord's word and his life, and he's seen as righteous. So for the way for us to become the friend of God, the way for us to have a right relationship with God is the same way as it was for Abraham, that we rest not on our own works, but in the works of Jesus Christ on our behalf upon the cross. And it, it's, it's not as many in our day suggest that it's an intellectual head nod. Yeah, I believe that, but it doesn't impact their life whatsoever. It's not as if, yeah, maybe, I kind of sort of believe that. But no, it's a full trust and a rest upon the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And believe me, when we believe that, it changes us, does it not? All of a sudden, you start to see things differently. You see others differently. 
for the one way for sinful human beings to be right relationship with God is through the perfect righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And this is Abraham. Jesus wasn't born yet. But he believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he's saved by grace through God. You know, if the president were to invite you to the White House, you would probably get a new outfit, right? You probably would do something to change your appearance in order to, to clean yourself up a little bit. But one day we will be invited into God's presence. And it won't be something that we do to clean up our appearance. It will be something that Jesus has done on our behalf. And so my question to you this morning is, are you in a right relationship with him? Do you know this saving grace that only God can bring to you in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? Because he has done so. And as we approach him in the intercessory life, we're made friends with God. Jesus says that in John's gospel. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And when the friends approach him, it's different. He implores us to come to him, and he listens. Secondly, we notice that intercessions are being made according to God's character. Look what he says in verse 25. Far be it from me, you, to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham is approaching God as his friend, also recognizing that God is the just God. God is the holy God. He's not the God of Abraham's creation or anybody's creation. He's the God who is. I've often heard people say, I doubt the existence of a judgmental God who requires blood sacrifice to pacify his wrath. Someone has to die before God pardons us? Really? Why can't he just forgive? The only God that is believable to me is a God of love. Have you heard such comments? It's one of the culture's barriers to belief. But you do not want a God of all love only. We all need a God who's going to make wrong right in the end. Amen? And the revelation before us and throughout the scripture, if one would call themselves a Christian, we acknowledge that God is perfectly holy and perfectly merciful. He is both. Because verse 21 states that there is a great outcry that's coming to God's ears from Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were terrible little towns, ladies and gentlemen, in which the inhabitants only cared for themselves, where they brutalized and oppressed the poor and the needy and the downcast. And there, there, this outcry came from the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. An unpunished sin cited out to God for vengeance like the blood of Abel. In chapter 4, verse 10, the outcry is described as very grave. Did you catch that? You see, if you had been offered a job there, you wouldn't move. You wouldn't want to go there. And there are some Sodoms today, communities that do not take God's word seriously. But those who do take God's word to heart 
are not the ones who ought to shake. Sadly, it is those who believe nothing, who fear nothing, until it is too late. Yale theologian Miroslav Volf, a Croatian who has seen the violence in the Balkans, states it this way. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis, he says, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West, but it takes the quiet suburban hone for the, my thesis that the human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked in blood of the innocent, it will invariably die along with the other pleasant captives of the liberal mind. No, my friends, God is just. And he will right all wrongs one day, and we want that. But thank God in Jesus, we're justified. We're righteous. And we're his friend. But as we approach him, let us remember that he is both holy and merciful. And last, let us also be persistent like Abraham. Notice, he doesn't go to him just once. He didn't go to him just twice. He kept going with the implication that, oh, if there's just one. And there was. It was Lot and his family. So he decides to get Lot out. And we'll talk about that next week. But even for the sake of ten, as we will see, I will preserve my people. And Abraham demonstrates for us the persistence to intercession is key if we want to see God move in our world. And that's a mystery. We don't know exactly how it works. The best illustration I can think of is an old-time lockbox in a bank. You know, it used to be, I don't know if it is today, I don't have a lockbox. I suppose I need one. But, you know, it used to be that the banker had a key and you had a key and you both had to go in and unlock the lockbox, safety box, right? I don't know if it is like that today or not. But it's like that. God holds a key to these concerns that we're bringing. We hold a key. And if we don't pray, it doesn't happen. So it's important for us to remember that as we plead to God like Abraham, we can plead to him to move. Why? Because we're in a relationship with him and because we recognize that he is who he is. He will hear us. Charles Simeon, that great Anglican preacher of the 19th century, arrived at Holy Trinity Church at the age of 22. He was smart. He graduated from seminary very early. I graduated at 41. I think it says a lot more about me than it does about him. He started to preach God's word faithfully to God's people, and the people hated him. Absolutely hated the gospel, didn't want anything to do with it, and because they paid pew rent and they had box pews, they locked the pews so nobody else could come. So if you actually liked his sermons, you had to come and to stand. As he came to the 8 o'clock service in the morning, they would have thugs ambush him and throw rotten vegetables at him. So that when he came to preach, he would smell. They went to the bishop and they said, we don't like him, we want him out of here. And the bishop, thank God for our Anglican governance, said, 
no way, he's my man, take it. So they said, well, we're just going to lock our pews. And for 20 years, that went on. Can you imagine? I've said it often, thank you for not throwing things at me. <laughs> but you know what he did? He started to pray. He got up every morning at 4 o'clock and prayed. All of a sudden, people that were standing came to faith in Jesus in Cambridge. And he recruited them to be vestry. And they started to pray. And 20 years later, he's now 42. Revival broke out at Holy Trinity Cambridge. To the point that it spread to the university. To the point that missionaries went all over the world. For at that time, the sun never set on the British flag, right? So I asked Bishop Zumbas about this when he was here on his last visit. And he said, oh yes, I can take you to villages where outside of them are English graves. Why do you think we wear powdered wigs at Diocesan Synod? It's a pretty interesting thing seeing this wonderful, proud lion of a chancellor of the diocese in Bukuru or Joss, and he's got an English powdered wig on. We go, wow, that looks kind of silly. Oh, they're grateful for the English bringing Jesus to them at a great cost. Because Charles Simeon and his vestry prayed. And they didn't stop after getting one apple thrown at you. They kept going. My friends, let us be such persistent prayers as we seek to serve the Lord in our day. We're looking for a revival in our country. We're looking for a revival, but revival always begins with God's people on their knees in repentance. Always. Let's remember that as we go to confession today. That we be faithful as we walk forward. That men on this Father's Day, let's be the men of God that we've been called to be. And praying persistently that we would be such. That we would be men that know that the right thing is not always the popular thing. That we will often be criticized, opposed, even rejected for doing the right thing. That greatness is found in humility, not in touting one's greatness. I hit my first home run when I was eight years old. How do you think I reacted? I'm going around the bases fist pumping like Kirk Gibson. Yes, yes. I cross home plate. My dad met me at the back of the dugout. He says, come here, son. Don't ever do that again. Act as if you've been there before. I said, okay. Never hit another home run for the rest of my life. <laughs> Actually, I hit a couple, but this was luck, trust me. But the reality is humility is not in touting one's greatness. Act like we've been there before. And let's stay away from ministerial strutting as a potty. Let's recognize that men and women, we're all called to do hard things in the kingdom. Let's pray that we recognize that we're called to hard things such as marriage, such as raising children. It's important that we recognize that we're called as Christians sometimes to fly into the flack of life. Let's recognize men that we're called to protect our wives and families. We're called to protect them physically, emotionally, spiritually, and lay down our lives for them if need be.
Let's also be good at what we do vocationally. Paul says, be excellent in all things. It doesn't matter whether you're a plumber, a professor, an athlete, a student, a doctor, a pastor, or a custodian. Never stop, stop striving to grow in your craft. Let us pray for that. My father was an economic forecaster for what is today Martin Marietta. He seemed to approach every project as if it were his last. May we do the same. Let's also remember that there's no substitute for being there. There's really, let's get rid of the word quality time. Let's have quantity time with our families, with one another. And let's be present in our families' lives. Spend hours talking about God's word. Talk about the calves. Talk about the tribe. Talk about good books. Talk about merits, demerits. Country music, rock music, pop music, gospel music, classical music, whatever interests our families have. Let's make a huge presence in the landscape of our families' lives. Let us treasure Christ above material things and recognize that whatever our wealth is, it will never have us. We have it, and we gladly give it away. And last, let's remember men, especially as we are persistent in our prayer lives, let's courageously serve others not by deploying bare knuckles. Grew up in a neighborhood where you were going to get into a fight. And if you got into a fight, you better win. My father warned me against confusing real manhood and such boorishness. He would often say, the real man is a Christ-picturing servant, not a Rocky Balboa wannabe. Paul says to the Corinthian church, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Isn't that beautiful? We all follow in giant footsteps, and I pray that we would be people who are in right relationship with the Lord, recognizing who God truly is, holy and just and merciful. And let's be persistent in our prayer lives. When Charles Simeon retired at 72, they said, oh, Mr. Simeon, you can sleep in now and get some rest. And he said, oh, far be it from me to start to be slothful now as I approach my day's end for what my Lord has done for me. And he kept getting up at four. May we follow in similar. You don't have to get up at four. It's, it's, it's between you and God. But the reality is, let us be persistent, recognizing who God is, in right relationship being the men and women of intercession that we're all called to be. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this day. May we glorify you in all that we say and do as the application of this word in our lives rings true. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.